Let me remind you what Peter was saying. Slaves, verse 18, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Or 3 verse 1, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. Or verse 8 of chapter 3, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. I think most of you will have heard of uh, uh, John Bunyan, the 17th century uh, writer and preacher who most famously wrote um, Pilgrim's Progress, which um, has been widely used by God down through the centuries and around the world. I want to read to you, as we begin, from Bunyan's own account of his conversion, at least from a part of it. He was a young man, he was working as a tinker um, uh, in Bedfordshire, and he tells us this, Upon a day, the good providence of God called me to Bedford to work at my calling. In one of the streets of that town, I came where there were three or four women sitting at a door in the sun, talking about the things of God. And being now willing to hear what they said, I drew near to hear their discourse. Their talk was about a new birth, the work of God in their hearts, and also how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus and with what promises they had refreshed and comforted and been supported against the temptations of the devil. Methought they spake as if joy did make them speak. They spake with such pleasantness of scripture language and with such appearance of grace in all they said that they were to me as if I had found a new world, as if they were people that dwelt alone and were not to be reckoned amongst their neighbours. And that experience was a crucial step um, towards faith for Bunyan. I want you to notice a few things about that story. One is that he wasn't actually crucially shaped by a formal evangelistic event. There was no mesmerising, gifted speaker. As far as we know, these women were not trained evangelists. They were just ordinary Christians. In my experience, the majority of people um, have their crucial contact with the gospel in uh, just that kind of way, through ordinary Christians. You know, pe- people like me who stand at the front, we have a role, uh, um, but overwhelmingly, Our role is to help ordinary believers live out their lives as godly men and women in the world and it is is those ordinary lives that bear fruit. And notice, notice as well, it was the quality of their lives that made the difference for Bunyan. He confesses actually in the, in the, um, uh, in a, elsewhere in the same uh, passage that he didn't understand a word of what they were talking about. It wasn't that that drew him to them, or even that that changed him on that day. But it was what he speaks about, the joy that did make them speak, the the pleasantness and grace of their speaking. 
seems to me that those kinds of observations go a long way to explaining why the New Testament letters don't particularly uh, emphasise mobilising people in evangelism, teaching people gospel outlines, getting punters along to evangelistic meetings. It's not that the New Testament writers are uninterested in people hearing the gospel, far from it. It's that they expect that actually as believers live out their lives for Christ in the world, that will be the church's primary witness. And so you find again and again in Scripture that the most important thing we need to learn to commend the gospel to the world is not what to say so much as how to behave. And as we've unpacked 1 Peter, we've been heading in that kind of direction. We have seen the broad contours of of how Peter wants to portray the church. He begins by describing them as scattered exiles, as Dan was saying just a moment ago, in a a hostile world, living with joy um, that comes from their hope as they uh, they look forward to their uh, their final inheritance, living differently, focused on their hope, enjoying their, their new identity in Christ, developing new habits of repentance, encouraging, stirring up new affections of love for one another, developing an appetite for God's word, living differently, living, he says, as, as, as the new people of God in the public realm, declaring God's, God's praises, as Dan was pointing out to us, living such good lives among the pagans that they will glorify God on the day he visits us, submitting to authorities in the public sphere as well, living as free people. The the, the broad contours then of what it means to be believers in the world, um, Peter has sketched out. But now he gets very specific. Now now he wants wants, wants to get down to the nitty gritty then of specific situations because he knows it's actually in specific situations as those big picture things are worked out specifically as a group of elderly ladies sit on a street and talk about their faith or as a, a young person lives out their, their, their life before their fellow students or, a, or, as, or as someone in the workplace works with integrity or as a family member simply lives with the joy of what it means to, to, to belong to Christ. In those specific situations, the people are changed. The people learn to want to hear the gospel. So, we're going to look this morning at three specific, slightly more private, rather than the big, broad, public um, um, uh, areas of life where we are expected then, called to live different lives that commend the gospel of Jesus. And the first one's in the, in the workplace. That was very clear in um, uh, verse 18. Slaves, we are told, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, 
but also to those who are harsh. Here's a different world, of course. We're dealing with slavery um, that uh, um, has, of course, been uh, abolished. But there are strong connections with how ordinary labourers in the workplace should live. And his message is very controversial. Submit, he says. In our culture, which is dominated by rights, that doesn't sit easily, is it? Especially the injunction to submit even to harsh masters or bosses. But you see, the biblical mindset is not dominated by rights, it is dominated by responsibilities. That doesn't mean that we're always a pushover at work. It's not, a, it's not an absolute commitment to submit in every way to absolutely everything. There is plenty of New Testament advice and examples about seeking justice and plenty in uh, uh, Christian history. The Toll Puddle martyrs, martyrs, for instance, who were foundational in um, modern labour rights were committed Bible-believing Christians and we rightly applaud them. It's not an absolute um, injunction for any and every situation, but it is a general injunction. That we don't actually stand on our rights at work. The central thing at work is we think about our responsibility. And our responsibility is to serve faithfully in the workplace. Generally, if you talk to, talk, talk to people and ask them why they, why, why they work uh, in our world, their first reaction will be for the money. That is absolutely abhorrent to Scripture. Not that, of course, money is not important. We all need to live but that we labour actually to do good in the world. And, uh, and as that, we work for our company or our organisation or our boss because they, uh, we are ultimately working for God. The fundamental mindset then as we go into work is not, I demand my rights of an appropriate amount of pay and all of those kinds of things. The fundamental mindset is that centrally I'm called to serve God in his world through submission to authorities at work. Submitting to injustice, says Peter, paradoxically results in real benefit for us. Uh, if we are believers. Verse 19, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. It is, they are commended before God. Indeed, it is the essence of what it means, he says, to follow Christ. Verse 21, (coughs) to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. One remembers the, uh, 
the, the, the distressing reports of, uh, for instance, the execution of Saddam Hussein as he cursed his onlookers before he died or the horrific footage of Colonel Gaddafi cursing his captors as he was mortally wounded and would soon die. And one compares those that we have seen in the news in the last few years to the extraordinary dignity of Jesus who stood and took total injustice and yet did not curse or threaten or cry out but entrusted him to himself to God. And if our saviour, our leader can do that then surely we can from time to time put up with the petty niggles and problems in our workplace without constantly complaining or claiming our rights or, or uh, backbiting or speaking behind their, their, uh, their backs or uh, shortcutting on our work or whatever other ways we think we will try to find to, to, to retaliate. No, says Peter, that, that, is to, that is to walk away from following Jesus. That is to bring, bring disrepute on the head of Jesus. There is no commendation in that. Our calling, he says, is to work as to God. We have a wonderful heritage of that in Maudlin Road, I could tell you about the uh, former church member, for instance, who, who endured more or less daily mockery for his faith and for his lifestyle that didn't involve all the wild things that um, his colleagues went, went out and did uh, at the weekends. And um, one day he came to me and he said, um, he said, a funny thing's happened to me, he said, the directors of the company want you to come and explain Christianity to, to them. Or I could, or I could tell you about um, uh, a, a man who some of us will remember, Harold Poyser, who, who was here. He ended his days as a, as, a, as a college servant. He would have various senior, senior members of the college, uh, academic members, come, come and ask him to pray uh, for them about some issue or whatever and and Harold would consistently say I'm not only going to pray for you I'm going to pray with you and he'd take them to the college chapel and they would kneel together before the Lord and my prayer is that that there there are people here whose lifestyle now and in the future will be like that so that people see Christ in us And we pray, come to put their faith in Christ. The first place then, in the workplace. The second place that Peter uh, speaks about is in the home or in the family. 1 Peter 3, for instance. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
And there's that word again, that, that niggling word, that word that doesn't go with our rights culture. Submit. And once again, of course, it's not, not, not an absolute injunction. But the, the extreme feminists are wrong in suggesting that there, there is no difference between male and female in marriage. Actually, in our post-feminist age, that, that is increasingly being recognised, I'm very glad to say. John Gray, in his classic book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, he, he puts it like this. He says that women need to be cherished, men need to be respected. However you articulate it, Increasingly, even in the secular literature on, uh, in marriage these days, there's a real recovery of the glory of femininity and masculinity and the complementary way that uh, men and women need to work together. And although Peter's language is frankly, I think, a bit politically incorrect because he didn't live in a world that was dominated by feminism. Nevertheless, what he says is fundamentally true. One of the commonest reasons for unhappiness in marriages today is that, for instance, the woman feels left to it at home. The man is more or less absent. And when you dig a little bit, you find... Uh, so commonly, a man who is either unwilling or unable to lead his family and a woman who has either grabbed the reins or she has felt she must pick up the reins because she's been left to it. But she's done it with a, a, a profound sense of desertion. Now, the biblical calling is very, very relevant today. Men, lead your family. Take responsibility. The absentee father is the, the epidemic in our culture today. Families need fathers. Women, let those men lead. doesn't need to be cruel, oppressive uh, patriarchy. All good marriages are a partnership of equals but a partnership in which the complementarity of gender roles is worked out. And in those situations, marriages thrive. But then notice specifically Peter's focus then of what the fruit will be of that lifestyle. The unbelieving husband gets converted. He is won over without words, by the behaviour of his wife. Not, she hasn't been trained as an evangelist in the home, or at least not in terms of speech. She has simply been living out her, her life with purity and with reverence, as Peter says, and her husband cannot stand against it. Contrary to all, what all the catwalks in the world, the half the adverts on the TV, you see, clothes, says Peter, do not make the woman. 1 Peter verse, verse 3. Your beauty should not 
come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter is not saying dress drab women. It's fine to dress nicely. Rather, he is saying that actually it's not true to say beauty is only skin deep. Almost the opposite. True beauty comes from somewhere far, far deeper than the surface. The French writer Margaret Durat in a book entitled The Lover wrote, I know it's not clothes that make women beautiful or otherwise, nor beauty care, nor expensive creams, nor the distinction of costliness of their finery. I know the problem lies elsewhere. I don't know where. I only know it isn't where women think. Well, here, says Peter, is where true beauty lies. In a gentle and quiet spirit before God, he says. Husbands, too, he says. Honour your wives. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Peter's unnuanced description of wives as the weaker partner again tends to shock and stop us seeing the true responsibility of husbands. Paul describes it elsewhere as that, that husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Peter talks in slightly different language, but the same basic idea of considerateness, of respect, of living as heirs together of life. Here, actually, is a model that our world longs for. A harmony, do you see, of mutual self-giving, which shames those who see all of life as a battle of the sexes. It is not. It is, it is a mutual pouring out of one another for the benefit of each other and the collective benefit of the whole. Peter expects the world to be won over by marriages like that. Husbands and wives here in particular How is God calling you to change? Perhaps there's an absentee husband who has abdicated responsibility for the family and leaves his wife to it. Perhaps there is a a stroppy wife, a turbulent wife, A biting, carping wife. No, says Peter. We must live with mutual consideration. We must live as God calls us to. And then from the workplace and the family 
Peter turns to the family of God, to the church. Finally, says verse 8, chapter 3, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Notice here too, the first priority for God's people is the quality of their life together as a local church. Churches need good Bible teaching. Churches need good organisation. They need gospel vision. But they are absolutely useless without sympathy, love, compassion and humility. It is those things centrally the church is called to. Notice too as well that Peter expects a bit of evil and insulting to be flying around at times amongst the people of God. Um, Verse 8 is clearly about the life of the church because he speaks about one another and it doesn't look like he's particularly moved on from describing the, 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 um, the life of the church in verse 9 when he speaks of not repaying evil for evil or insult with insult, because we are fallen people, we are not perfect people. It strikes me that many, many um, difficulties that churches and Christians get, get into in their interactions with one another is because when there is a bit of um, uh, sin in the life of the church, people are totally devastated. How could that be? Whereas the New Testament expects this to be a place where people are seeking to overcome sin. The key thing, says Peter, is that sin doesn't spiral out of control. But when something difficult happens to you amongst the, uh, with, with the rest of God's people, that you don't insult back because you were insulted that you don't give evil back because something bad was done to you. But you bless, he says. And and this will be a a challenge for us, I think, particularly as a church over the next few months because we're living actually at a time of, 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 of real exciting gospel expansion. It's, it's transparently obvious um, if you've been here for, for um, uh, a few months, that we're growing here. Um, and uh, not only actually with new Christians joining us, but with people getting converted. We've got a, a baptismal service on the 9th of December. Anyone who's thinking about baptism here, come and talk to me. Um, yeah, you won't be alone. And in part because of that growth, we, we, have, we, we, are, we are starting to, to, to expand in terms of ministry. We have formed the, the new missional home group that we were praying about in, in, in Central Cowley, which is now up and functioning. And we are praying that in time it will be a separate church, blessing God in that, uh, that, that area of uh, of. of of Oxford, and that, that's just really exciting. And perhaps more painfully as well, um, for us all, um, most of you here will, re- will know that um, uh, the results of our time of prayer and fasting 
in the spring, I became personally convinced that the Lord is calling me to be even more involved in, in raising up a new, a new generation of gospel-hearted men and women in Oxford. And as I discussed that with the elders, I think it became clear to us all that that, that, that vision, particularly the, the vision to be much more involved with the university and with students, um, looked very unlikely to be compatible either with Malden Road's vision or of its location, to be honest, in, in East Oxford, where we are. So the elders sent me away to, to reflect on that and out of those discussions comes, has come duties and my conviction that it's the right thing to do to establish a new church in the centre of the city over the, uh, over the next couple of years. And the elders have been uh, extremely generous in allowing me the freedom and the time to work on this. And it does seem to be gathering real momentum at the moment. It, 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 we, we got to the point where we were sharing it with the church when we realised that it was more likely than not to happen. And I've been very clear all along that Morden Road itself doesn't have the resources to do both of those things, the new um, uh, Central Cowley Initiative as well as, uh, as the centre. So, we're seeking um, financial resources and so on from elsewhere. And my expectation and hope is that the vast majority of people um, here will remain committed to Magdalen Road because I think Magdalen Road has a great vision to reach out to the peoples of East Oxford as, um, uh, as Martin was, uh, uh, was articulated, uh, articulating earlier. I think, I think that's a really, really good vision for Magdalen Road to have. But of course, some will feel called to join Judy and I in this uh, new project in the centre. The elders have been um, are very committed to generously supporting and, and blessing everyone as, they, as, as, as individuals seek God's calling on their life. I'm very committed personally to making sure that I, I do everything that I possibly can to ensure that Maudlin Road continues to implement its vision and, and to thrive as she is as a church today. After all, uh, after our immediate family, I think Judy and I would both say that you are the most precious people in the world to us and I'm really committed to Maudlin Road thriving. But this next couple of years won't be without pain. It is the pain of gospel growth. Someone described it to me as like a family breakup. Um, perhaps. Of course, families break up in different ways. They can break up because of divorce. But actually, naturally and healthily, Families move apart as kids grow up and follow their own calling and establish themselves as individual adults. And there is sadness in that. What, what father or mother hasn't cried when their um, child goes off to university? Sometimes there's a bit of fractiousness in that as well as, uh, as, as those, uh, those independent lives start to, to start to establish themselves. But it is healthy, natural growth. I want us, I want us to see the next few, few years very much 
in that way. There is a deep love between us that will not be broken. We must preserve what Peter is talking about here um, uh, in terms of of like-mindedness and sympathy and love and compassion. We must deal with those schools of turbulence associated with the the fact that we, both actually in one sense, Magdalene Road and and, um, I are moving into the unknown. Someone someone said to Judy, Magdalene Road has been the Comonts. Although it's a slight overstatement, we have been deeply engaged as a family in, in this church for nearly a generation now. And it won't be without its pain. But it is gospel growth pain. Just as you raise your kids and then you, they go out into the world and you have to allow that level of independence. So, it's my, it's my uh, hope and prayer that actually as we in this exciting phase of growth um, uh, uh, start to develop three separate churches over the next few years that it will be like a healthy family spreading its wings and there will be deep, warm, adult gospel partnerships both pursuing our own good gospel visions and cooperating together in evangelism and training and church planting and more. It is an exciting time to be alive and belonging to this church and this kind of church. I had coffee with a senior Anglican clergyman this week who is nearing uh, retirement. We were chatting about the idea of, of a new church in the centre and he said, Peter, Anglican clergyman, remember, Peter, you must do it, he said, as the Church of England becomes more engulfed by political struggles, the future of the gospel in this country rests much more heavily on free churches than it once did. You must multiply, he said. You free churches need to know this is your moment. There is a real sacrifice in multiplying. It is not easy for families as they grow up and spread their wings. But it is worth it because it is for the sake of Jesus Christ and of his gospel. And the fruitfulness of the whole gospel enterprise in this city of Oxford will not depend upon the giftedness of individuals, on the strategies, even on the precise details of the visions. It will ultimately, says Peter, depend upon the quality of the way that the believers conduct themselves. Verse 10. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil, their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. 
they must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil.